You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages on the fellowships that Irvin Robertson presented at Moody Week at Winona Lake 78. Then on Friday, a standalone message on the Good Samaritan. Irvin Robertson was a 1938 graduate of MBI, missionary, author, MBI faculty member, and coordinator of the Boynton Beach Extension of Moody East. Now, here is Irvin Robertson on Today in the Word Radio. You will recall that we have spoken on the previous two occasions of the fellowship of the gospel, the two fellows in one ship, the fellowship of the gospel. We have spent a little time on the fellowship of the grace of God, the grace of God of which all of us have been made partakers. And I trust you will not forget John 1, 17, or is it 16, 16, and 17 at least? His fullness have we all received. Of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace, or put it grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Now in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to speak concerning the fellowship of the one mind, or the fellowship of like-mindedness. Just that if you are following a Schofield Bible, you would have the note somewhere at the beginning of this epistle that the key verse is chapter 1 and verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. And what I would like to suggest to you that if we accept that, as being the theme or the key to a study of Philippians, to me to live is Christ. Then the key chapter in the chapter 2, chapter 2, and the key verse in chapter 2 is verse 4, verse 4. It's one of the, I think, rather unfortunate things that in Scripture memorizing uh, organizations, many of us have memorized Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and so on. And we have, in our theological way, zeroed in on Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, as giving to us the great, great passage concerning the humiliation of the Lord Jesus and what all too often we have missed is the fact that the humiliation of Christ that begins with verse 6 is simply the illustration of the mind of Christ, which is stated in verse 4. May I say that again, unless, lest it be somewhat confusing? That what we have in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, the great humiliation passage, is simply the illustration of the mind of Christ— but which is stated in verse 4. Let me read verses 4 and 5 and then move on just to 6 and stop there. I think you'll see what the Lord has in mind. In Philippians 2.4, Paul says, Every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Here is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to us through his servant Paul. And he says, now here's the principle for your living. Look at your own things, but 
every man look every man on the things of others. Or as another has put it, you must look to each other's interest and not merely to your own. Look not every man on his own things, but on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see how it follows. The mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which Christ Jesus, who, and here's where we begin, verse 6, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a in likeness as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you. What mind? He did not look things, but he looked primarily on the things of others. I've oftentimes thought in recent months, in all of our counseling and so on and so on, which is one of the major activities, it seems, among the many of the Lord's people in these that practically all of our need for counseling would be eliminated among the Lord's people at least if we would only abide by Philippians 2.4. There would be very little problems, very few marital problems if the wife looked to the interest of her husband and the husband looked primarily to the interest of his wife, wouldn't there? Let the Lord Jesus Christ be your example as to what your attitude should be. Your attitude. The mind. And may I say that this is one of the constant daily prayers of my heart. That, O oh God, thou wouldst enable me, O oh God, by thy grace, enable me to look out for the other fellow first. O oh God, to do that which is not normal, it is not natural to the unsaved man. All of our psychologists and philosophers and so on tell us this, that what men do, they do essentially for their own benefit. And this, of which we speak this morning, is something that is not natural. It is something that is supernatural. But we likewise remember that you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we have been new creations in whom all things are passed away, in whom all things are become new, you see. Enable us, O God, enable me, may I put it more personally, the other person first. Now, if you look in chapter 1, verse 27, you'll see where he picks up the idea of the same mind or the one mind and so on. In verse 27, chapter 1 of Philippians, <clears throat> Let your conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Let your conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You notice the one spirit and the one mind there. I move down to chapter 2 and verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love being of one accord, of one mind. So he's speaking here of mindedness, 
that is to characterize the Lord's people, the body of Christ. He's speaking of the one mind, of the single mind, which was exhibited primarily, basically, totally, and altogether sufficiently in our Jesus Christ. What is this single mind or this like-mindedness to be? Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to be people of a single mind, people who have the same motivation, which we spoke the other day. The great motivation is none other than 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ has us in its control. The love of Christ is the great motivating factor in my life. I love the Lord Jesus Christ so much that I cannot, I cannot withhold my Everyone knows him as I know him. The love of Christ, I love him so much. This is the overwhelming passion in my life, as the apostle would say. Or, in the other way that we suggested, the love of Christ may so be. The love of Christ flowing through me unto those who need that love so very, very, very much. The same motivation and the same purpose, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or whatsoever you do. Oh, I trust a verse like that will just get hold of you as you, some of you go back to the kitchen and some of you go back to the factory and some of you go back to the office and so on and so on. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, or Colossians 3, 17. Whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, do all as the Lord do who did all things to the glory of God. Now you recognize that we're dealing here in the area of the supernatural. This is not possible apart from the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's why it's so absolutely that we learn how to exercise faith in laying hold of the grace of God. The grace of God that enables us to be gracious, that enables us to be sweet with a sweetness that's not natural. The grace of God us to be loving with a love that is not natural. The grace of God that makes us attractive to others with an attractiveness that is not natural. The motivation and the purpose. And our purpose for the glory of God fair of others. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The like-mindedness, like-minded with that, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you'll into these in this passage known as the great humiliation passage. Let me remind you once again, because it's all too easy. You may have heard this on many occasions. And it's perfectly proper to take Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and say, here is the humiliation of Christ. But friends, remember that the great passage on the humiliation of Christ is simply an illustration of that which is to typify your life and mine as we're thinking about others rather than ourselves. Of course, the whole point is that the Lord Jesus thought so much of others that he did empty himself. He did take upon the form of a servant. He was found in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he was still others, 
that he became obedient. The Lord of life became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Why? Because he had primarily thought of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Thoughtfulness of others. This passage is known as the great kenosis, or the great humiliation passage, and we must needs spend some time on the on this humiliation passage. Because remember, it is the not the doctrine per se. It begins, as I've suggested, with verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, and so on, through this passage. And the first thing to be underlined, would that we had a lot more time than we have to speak concerning the necessity that we recognize the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you, some of you well realize that we are being beset by cults of all our day as perhaps never have been before. And you will find that one of the basic heresies in most of the, quote, Christian, unquote, cults, perhaps the basic heresy is a denial of the deity there is the, usually the delineation of the fact that Jesus Christ is the firstborn in God's family, that Jesus Christ was the creator who himself was created, the first created being through whom God created all things. Some of you recognize immediately that that's basic in certain of the cult, of the cultic teaching. And it seems to me all the more that we must realize and stand on this with feet that Jesus Christ is none other than God incarnate, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, if Jesus Christ were not God, then he could not have died for your sins and mine. And no matter how good he may have been, could not have died for the sins of all men. If one were teaching the theology of salvation, he would certainly have to begin somewhere there. Now, Philippians 2.6 is one of your in this. Notice, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is simply the declaration that Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. Being of God, that is, he always had the very nature of God. Or as another has translated, being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to Because he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with the Father something to be reached out after. He already was equal. Why did he need to reach out for that which he already was? Or as Philip's so well, he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. His state was divine, and he did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself, and so on. It's a good thought which I cannot emphasize here, but in all of this humiliation passage, you must notice that the humiliation, every step is a vulnerable it's something that he himself did for the sake of others. It is not something that he was forced to do. It was something that he voluntarily did for the sake of people like us. 
Look not every man on his own things, but every man always on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being equal with God, thought not his equality with God something to be but he emptied himself. We'll talk about the emptying in just a few moments. But let me underline that again. Well, let me give you just a few verses in that particular, in this particular area. The one that most of you know, John chapter 1. The great gospel of John, which you will remember was pointed out to us the other night, was written so that men might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These things have I written unto you that you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose for the writing of the Gospel of John, the Son of God. May I just parenthesize here before I go to John 1.1 and say that any suggestion of inferiority thinking when you speak of the Son must be put out of your mind altogether. The Sonship of Christ does not in any way imply any kind of inferiority. The Son was one Father from all eternity. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's equality, by the way. And the Word was God. I read that, and the Word was God, or the Word was God. And it always seems to me that we carry there the wee bit of an implication that He was, you see. And we forget that he not only was, but he is, because he did not lay a quality of deity. And I usually like to read it, at least in classes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Am I shouting this loudly enough? Calling at this, these microphones. But the Word was God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh. The Word was deity in the beginning. And the Word became that which He had not been prior to that time. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.1. 1, 1. Then I just let me hastily add, you ought to put there somewhere, Colossians 1.15. That's another great Christological passage. Colossians 1.15 through verse 19. That he was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and so on. He was the image of the invisible God. That is, the image simply is the visible of that which is. It's not in the sense simply of a picture, but in the Lord Jesus Christ was demonstrated, was, was illustrated, was manifested, was revealed God himself. One of the verses that really uplifts my spirit every time I think of it is Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. Who was the very effulgence of his glory? Well, let's look at Hebrews 1, 1, 2, and 3 and read them somewhat explicitly. It's verses 2. Perhaps I'd better read verses 1, 2, and 3. God who at sundry times, this is Hebrews 1, 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath 
spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now look at verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The expression there that simply grips me every time I look at, at it, uh, well, is the first Who being the brightness of his glory? Who being the, the, the radiance, the outshining, the effulgence of the glory of God himself? And the express image of his person, his character, which is the English word character, being the very character of God's person. I think we must realize that when we read the word glory, what is the glory of God? What is the ineffable, inexpressible glory of God? The glory of God, dear friends, is simply the sum of all the attributes of God. All of the perfections of God rolled into one comprise God's glory. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see nothing less than the vestation of the glory of the infinite God. I love the word effulgence. I realize it doesn't say too much to too many of us. But it means the radiance or the outshining of the very glory of God and the express image of his The express image of his person. We must needs never forget, if I should ask any of you, why did the Lord Jesus Christ come to this earth? Or why did the Son of God become flesh? You would quite correctly answer, die for us. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. But we must also recognize that the Son became flesh in order to reveal the Father. Oh, I'd love on that particular point. John 1.18 tells us, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom heart of the Father, he hath revealed him. So that when we look at Philippians 2.6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, it is simply a declaration that he was in all things one with God the Father. God the Son and God the Father and of course God the Spirit are altogether equal, altogether one. to be equal with God. Well, we've talked about Colossians 1.15. I've suggested that, Hebrews 1.3. But turn, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, which I think is, gives you a very clear illustration of what we're speaking. This is one of these passages which I'm quite positive we had read together in the part dozens upon dozens of times without really realizing what it said. And I can, strangely enough, I can remember the occasion it was during about nine we were in India teaching in a seminary in South India. It was a Sunday morning prior to the morning service. I was reading John chapter 5. It was one of those times when the light, as it were, simply shone from heaven upon this passage. Speaking of the equality of the deity of Christ. And this, these are passages, friends, that you might well memorize to use when you deal with perhaps your dear friends who are following after the way of what are called Christian cults, heresies. 
nigh the deity of Christ. And please remember that the deity of Christ is absolutely fundamental in the doctrine of the atonement. If Christ is not God, then he could not die for us. Chapter 5. The background to the story is that the Lord Jesus has raised a man who had been impotent, this poor man who had been infirm for 38 years. Some of us, not all of us here, but some of us can try to imagine for 38 years. And the Lord Jesus healed him. But you remember the story that the leaders of the Jews on that day took exception to this. Not because he had raised the man who had been infirm, but because he did it on the Sabbath day. So bound by the legalism, the Pharisaism of the day, that they simply denounced him and they said he, he ought to be put to death. Why? Because he dared to heal this man on the Sabbath. Now we pick up the story in verse 16. Therefore did Jesus and sought to, to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Verse 17, but, there's the adversative conjunction where the thought is going to change. But Jesus answered them, Jesus answered them, and he said, My father worketh hitherto, and I am working. Somewhat of an enigmatic statement, is it not? And yet the Jewish leaders got the meaning immediately. Father has been working until now and is still working, and I have been working up until now and am still working. What was the reaction? Verse 18. Therefore, now notice this rather carefully, the Jews were to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but, now here it is, he said also that God was his own father making himself with God. You see, they got the implication, they got the suggestion immediately that this man claims to be none other than equal with God. Now that, of course, is diametrically opposed to the Judaism. Deuteronomy 6.4 Behold, O Israel, what? The Lord thy God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. This man claimed God's son. And claiming to be God's son means that he is claiming nothing less than equality with God. And anyone who claims this is worthy only of death because this is blasphemy. So they sought the more to kill him. Now may I parenthesize here just a wee bit again for those of you who are interested in Muslim work or work among the Muslims. The Muslims claim to be the worshippers of the one true God. Man must repeat from the heart in order to become a Muslim is in Arabic, and he has to do it in Arabic, La ilaha illallah. There is no God but God, you see. And to the Muslim, to suggest anything or anyone is equal with God is blasphemy. It is the most heinous sin that a man can commit and is worthy immediately of death. Blasphemy above blasphemy is there is anyone or anything equal with the Father. To them, it is the worst sin that can be committed. It takes me back to our early years in India while we were still learning the language, which was quite difficult. 
Long before I could speak or preach in the language of North India, I had gone to a festival with an old padre, an old pastor, a man well up in years, and we were out there giving out tracts and selling gospels, and he was preaching. Small marketplace situation. And I can see him yet as he stood there in his fervency of spirit and held up his gospel and quoted John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son of our meeting. Because a good percentage of the congregation were Muslims. And as soon as they heard him say, God's Son, they immediately screamed, God's Son, what is God's wife's name? I learned those experiences. And the meeting ended in a bit of a riot as they tore the tracts up, literally tore the Gospels up which they had bought. And one young fellow stood in front of us with a match and he literally burned that Gospel right in front of our eyes. Why? Because Muhammad suggested that God had a son. What was the problem there? Because in suggesting that God had a son to them meant that he was suggesting that God had an equal. To suggest anything equal with God is black of the worst type. Now look at how the Lord Jesus answered this in John chapter 5. They had claimed that he was worthy of death because he said God was his own father making himself equal with God. The Lord Jesus answer it. Oh, please put this passage somewhere down in your practical uh, passages. I'm not going to read it entirely, but it begins with verse 18, verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, One can do nothing off or by himself, but what he seeth the Father do. Now notice, For whatsoever things he the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son in the same manner. Perfectly obvious, isn't it? Or look at verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and giveth them life, even so the Son giveth life to whom he will. 23. That all men should honor the Father even as they honor the Son. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Passages to you as passages to be underlined and meditated upon at your leisure. John 1, 1, John 1, 14, John 1, 18, Colossians 1, 15, and following Hebrews 1, 3, and here in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Philippians 2, 6 again, Who being in the form of God thought it not something to be grasped after or something to be retained, with God. Oh, dear friends, please underline that in your thinking. You'll be able to use it. But what happened? We're back to Philippians 2, 6, and the verses that follow there. What was one with the Father do? Verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And may I underline in your thinking again the voluntary aspect of all of this. He made himself of no reputation. Or as others have translated it, he emptied himself. And this, of course, speaks to us of the incarnation. 
one possibly we'll be able to deal with here is of what did he empty himself? And this, by the way, for those who are theologically inclined, this is the great kenosis theory about which scholars have battled. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. The self-emptying. Of what did he empty himself? And we answer immediately, he did not empty himself of his deity. That in becoming man, the ceased to be God. He did not empty himself of his nature as deity. He took upon him, rather, he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of That's what we have in John 1.14, you see. The word became flesh. He doesn't say that the word ceased to be the word, but the word became or was made flesh. He emptied himself, not of his... To cut it very, very short, because this is, again, a large subject, the two things of which suggestions are usually made relative to the self-emptying are these, that he emptied himself voluntarily, number one, of the exercise of his power, or the independent exercise of his attributes... He, the Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, voluntarily subjected himself to do the will of the Father and the power of the indwelling Spirit. In all of this, he was an example for you and for me, by the way. In all of this, he was an example for us who are to walk according to the fullness of the Holy Spirit as he did. Himself, number one, of the independent exercise of his power. May I just suggest John 2:11 in there? In John chapter 2, we have the story of the first miracle recorded by John of Galilee. And in John chapter 2 and verse 11, we read that the, this miracle also did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. John 2:11. What is his glory is simply what he is. The glory of God is what God is. The glory of Christ is what Christ is, one with the Father. In the miracles recorded in the Word of God, in all of the miracles that he did, in that which was totally... He simply revealed who he was. There were flashes of his glory from time to time revealed in the miracles. He emptied himself of the independent exercise of his attributes or his power... And second, he emptied himself. He laid aside the visible manifestation of his glory. The visible manifestation of glory. I'm sure you could realize why that was. But dear friends, our point in all of this passage, as we have to hasten to the end again, the point in all of this passage is that he emptied himself all that he did in his going to death, the Lord of life. Can you imagine it? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And he was the Lord of life, and he became obedient unto death. How could that be? You have to answer, I simply do not know. But the point of all of this is that he did this, all of this. He emptied himself for the sake of others. He left all of the felicity of the glories of heaven itself and went to that most degraded form of death, even a death on the cross. That most degrading 
the most ignominious form of death that the Romans could imagine. Cicero, the Latin poet, said that the word cross is so despised it should not even be mentioned by a Roman citizen. Was hanging upon the cross in all of the shame of the nakedness of the situation, none other than the ineffable, sensitive Son of God Himself. But I underline again the point of all of this, friends, is that what He did, He did it for us. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, and so on. That all that we have in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is simply to give to you and to me, in all of weakness, and all of the inabilities, and the weaknesses, and the tendencies towards sin that are in these old natures of ours. All of this was, and I point directly at you one by one who love the Lord all of this is in order that he might give to us this sublime illustration that you and I are to follow be ye of the same mind be like let this mind be in you I could go on but time is gone Timothy and Epaphroditus are both suggested in Philippians 2 as men of flesh and blood like us who actually demonstrate this particular attribute. Just this verse, and with this I must close. Verse 20 of chapter 2 in Philippians, Paul writes about Timothy, I have no man like-minded who will care for your state. Timothy was a man who naturally cared for others. He was a man who had the mind of Christ, a man who looked naturally upon the needs of others than upon his own needs. Naturally. May this be the prayer of your hearts this morning. O God, so move upon me by thy Holy Spirit. May I know what it means to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit that I will do in every given situation exactly what the Lord Jesus would do if he were in that place, in my position. Grant, O God, that this day I shall not only to one person, but, O God, make me a channel of blessing to everyone that I meet this day. May everyone with whom I associate be to me an opportunity to be a channel of from thee. That's the mind of Christ. Do you think we dare pray for that? Shall we pray? Father God, again, we would praise thee. Oh, thou hast said so much. How can we really take all of this in? We who are naturally so selfish and so ready to think upon ourselves first. We thank Thee that it is true without question. Man be in Christ. He is a new creation. He is indwelt by Thy Holy Spirit. May we pray, O God, with Thy servant Paul, that we may know the love of Christ that...
that we may know experientially that love which is beyond our reckoning. Suit, O God, to each one in this place the blessing as thou dost see the need. Here this morning, who is without Christ, Lord, we pray for him or her. Are there those who do not have ears for these things, who simply brush them aside and say, that's too deep for me? The one who wrote these words, wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Let this mind be in us, O God, which was also in Christ Jesus. May we be characterized to love people because we love our blessed Lord Jesus and we love him because he loved us and gave himself for us. Upon us, O God, O blessed God, move upon us by thy Holy Spirit. May we be willing to commit our lives to give ourselves unto thee anew and afresh this morning that the Lord Jesus himself may be exalted and that thy name may be glorified even in us. Oh, blessed be thy name, O God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio and one of the fellowship messages that Irvin Robertson presented at Moody Week at Winona Lake, Indiana, 1978. Irvin Robertson was a 1938 graduate of MBI, missionary, author, MBI faculty member, and coordinator of the Boynton of Moody Evening School. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.